The restaurant industry has been fighting for survival over the last two years, and our greatest resource in this fight has been our people. The men and women who have poured, served, seated, greeted, and worked tirelessly to keep our industry going. Yelp for Restaurants believes now is the perfect time to recognize their efforts and give back to those that have given us so much with the creation of The Servies, a first-of-its-kind set of awards celebrating front-of-house workers. Winners receive a beautifully designed Servies trophy, a free pair of snib shoes, and a $3,000 tip. That's right. $3,000 in their pocket. Know someone deserving of a service award? Maybe they work at your restaurant. Visit theservies.com today and nominate them for a chance to win. Let's support the service industry together. Do so by nominating someone today. No purchase necessary. Must be 18 or older and a U.S. resident. Eight nominated contest winners will receive a prize of $3,000. Nominations must be submitted between August 3rd, 2022 and August 24th, 2022. See official rules available at theservies.com. Now here we go. You have to be different. You have to think outside the box and you have to try. Because if you don't try, well, then you're just going to be stuck working for somebody else the rest of your life and look back on your life and go, well, I could have done it that way. So there's no better time than to do it now. Right. And that's kind of my motto is just do it now and see where it lands. And hopefully it benefits you and the people around you. Welcome to Full Comp a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Have you ever wanted to own your own beverage brand? I think we'd all like to see our own booze sitting in our own restaurants. It's a logical brand extension, but just like knowing how to cook doesn't mean you can farm, Building a beverage brand is very different from building a restaurant, so I brought in some experts. Brett Lawrence and Stephen Young have not only built a successful hard seltzer brand, they built a brewery and a beer company before that. And in today's episode, we leverage their years of experience to determine the path of least resistance when building our own beverage brands. You know, it was a really fun time. I was I had the pleasure of meeting you, and I think being an Orange County born and raised guy, moving to LA and doing some nightclubs and getting into the restaurant field was fun. You know, I was able to take my family legacy, which is in hospitality and apply it towards LA. We had a good run. I think, I think we did really well. We were successful. We got a lot of magazines. We got a lot of celebrities there. We you know, were making good money and I learned a lot. I think we learned what to do and what not to do. And yeah, from there, you know, the economy of what 2008 took a dump. We remember that. And I just kind of sold our interest in that. And I kind of consolidated down to nothing to start over. And I actually moved to Bali. And I just said, I'm going surfing. I'm going to refresh my brain and move. And we did. And we, my brother for a bit, and they left me. And I was there for about six months. And New Year's Eve that year, I think it was 2009, 2010, I broke my knee. So I had to come home. In coming home, I had a good reset, I think, mentally. And from there, I, I kind of got back into the hospitality game, but more Orange County. And I dove into one of our estates that we do weddings, a place called Rancho Las Lomas. I was able to apply what I learned up in Hollywood and my background in hospitality, raising money and kind of a younger generation. My father, he passed away. So it was kind of like my mom was 
you know, sell the property or you want to give it a go. And I kind of gave it a go and just cliff notes did that, learned a lot. And one of the things there was, why am I selling this other beer and this other product when, you know, we do so many weddings and I go, I'm going to make my own. And we did, we made a beer. It was really drinkable. It was, we did a lager, we did IPAs, we were homebrewing. And then from there, we came up with a name called Town Park. And it was an old street sign on the property. And we ended up contract brewing. And then we ended up building a massive brewery about five years ago in Anaheim. We were doing really well. Steve, he came on as president and we were crushing it, growing too fast, I think. But unfortunately, COVID hit and we were about 90% restaurants. And the PPP loan for didn't cover a month's burn rate. So we decided to kind of get away from that. But in the interim, we started this hard seltzer, which we'll kind of go into. We saw White Claws and we saw this other stuff happening. And from there, the closure of the brewery turned into the life of this new brand. And we've got rid of the overheads and the cost and we contracted out and, and we're kind of sitting here today. That's like cliff notes. Sorry, it was a long and rambly, but we'll go more into details of stuff. But, but that's where I'm at. Steven, can you tell me how you met Brett and how this relationship started for you? What was your path to this partnership? I was just looking, walking down the road and saw this really attractive dude that was out on his phone. I was like, yo, holla. That was before kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I'll go with the Cliff Notes version, even though I can be accused of being a little verbose. So I worked with Stone uh, Brewing slash Stone Distribution for about six years and from 2010 to the end of 2016, grew with them and ran part of their sales channels with the distribution business and ended up having the opportunity to help them grow out all of their grocery slash chain business in, uh, in Southern California, not only for stone brewing, but for stone distribution as well. And yeah, I mean, just literally had a great run with them. So uh, bought back a number of distributors that they were doing sub distribution with and just really got to know how the chain business works within SoCal. So I specifically was in charge of the grocery department drug and convenience channel, but had an opportunity to jump from there to go with the guy that was running stone distribution at the time to go to a startup in the U S to a keg startup. So essentially renting kegs and leasing kegs out to different breweries and whatnot had a fun run there, but wanted to get back into the beverage industry. And so while I was going through and literally walking door to door, selling into breweries, I had heard about this place called Town Park. And I went in there and I was, you know, usually with these things, you just kind of walk in through the back door. And I think it was Jeremy at the time, Brett, like was like putting together an order and hauling it into a truck. And I wasn't really able to talk to anyone at the time, but ended up just writing a note over to Brett mentioning that, you know, some of my background and that I thought he had a, a beautiful location and had an interest of checking it out with them. They were really focused on what I thought would be the next big trend in the industry, which is creating amazing beer, but doing it in a way that wasn't weird or esoteric, you know, not any of the cab barrel aged lagers that have been dipped in Chipotle sauce and nothing against those whatsoever. I just thought that their approach was something that was refreshing. It was straightforward. It was clean. And so, yeah, that's how we met. I'm sure there are a lot of folks out there that are interested in starting a brewery. And since both of you have done it, what does the checklist look like? 
what are the essential elements of starting your own beer brand? And if you could go back and do it all over again, what's the path of least resistance? You want me to take it or you want to take it? <laughs> we probably have unique perspectives on it. Yeah, it's shoot. I do everything different, just like anything in life, right? I'm a perfectionist. I think we built a brewery that was on the outside and inside beautiful looking. I mean, did we have to spend that much to make it that pretty? The beer would have tasted the same. And people probably wouldn't have noticed some of the finishes I did on the walls or the bar. So there was that. But that's my personality. I want it done right. I want it done beautifully because it's a pride thing, right? And then we learned throughout the time. We hired a good staff. We had a good team. I think we we're trying to do too much. So I think I would do less, you know, less is more as we always hear. I mean, those are some of the things I think overspending, trying to do too much. We should have honed in and focused a little bit harder, but I think that's what's really cool about this is what we're doing now is we're cutting it back. We've got rid of the overhead. Like I said earlier is now we're able to really focus on the brand, the quality of the product. And we do have a great team until, you know, getting rid of that overspending and whatnot. So those are kind of some of the things I learned. Yeah. If I can jump in on that too, I think to what Brett mentioned is that he built one of the prettiest breweries that I've seen, you know, especially within the area. And especially at the time, I think from an aesthetic standpoint, it was perfect from a back of house operation standpoint. We eventually found out that we needed some different things to really get it going to the scale of what it would take. And we also needed to focus a lot more on sales and getting that out there. And so we took, I think, a lot of those learnings per what Brett is talking about and applied it to what we're now doing. And we created, first and foremost, a really exceptional product. So first and foremost, now Elephant Craft Hard Seltzer is made with all real ingredients. We have an elevated flavor profile. We're going after something that is really crafted to be something really special. But we after having to run a brewery for how long was it, Brett? Three years or something like that? Three years. Yeah. Those overheads. I mean, it just, it cuts into your soul. So <laughs> we, we decided, you know, let's try to take a different approach and start it off fresh and do things kind of a little bit differently. So we could go on and on about our learnings all day of how it works. But I think one of the biggest things was control your cost make sure you have an exceptional product, make sure you have the right team right off the bat. And if you have those factors going for you, then you can do something really special and you don't have to necessarily be doing it under the, you know, this beautiful roof. There's other ways to kind of scale it up as you go. And once you have the ability to move that forward and once you've built your sales and you have a little bit more surety and, you know, where your revenue is coming from, how much profit you're getting from it and how much spend you have left, then you can decide, all right, what makes sense for me to spend more funds elsewhere that are going to have an impact on our overall business. You mentioned sales and lines of distribution a couple of times there. I'm curious to know, with 90% of your volume coming from restaurants with the brewery, what were the benefits to that strategy? We know what the drawbacks were relative to COVID, but why go that route as opposed to going direct to consumer? Well, I think, you know, and Steve could go into it more. I never knew about the chains. So me being in restaurants and hospitality, I had the relationships with restaurants and the profit margins better on kegs. It's also more headache to clean them, 
you know, you've owned a restaurant, the pressure on the tap, you have a bartender calling at nine o'clock at night. You're like, just turn the knob, dude. <laughs> like a million things. You got to clean these things. And Steve came in and brought a whole nother animal, which was the off-premise, which is your grocery and all that, which I didn't know about. So unfortunately we were stepping into that. We were so heavy on the restaurants. Then we were stepping into that and then COVID hit. So we never really had a chance to ramp that up. So I think that's kind of where we held up over there. But it's kind of different with elephants. Steve can kind of go into that. I mean, what Brett did while when he was out on the street, because I mean, almost every single keg that was out there was sold by Brett, right? And he did a phenomenal job at it. But that's what he was great at. Like he also knew how to relate with restaurant owners and venues and whatnot. I mean, he has a venue that does catering. He's run nightclubs and whatnot. So I think that was your sweet spot. That's what you did really, really well. And you're really great at it. When I came in, I was the complete opposite, even though I used to do sales and on-premise as well. And I had reps that did sales before I kind of got strictly into the chain side. But my forte in the place that I had had a lot of success was on the off-premise side. So as Brett mentioned, it's the independence, it's the chain stores, it's anywhere where you're consuming beverage off-site. And so we did build that up over you know, an eight or nine month period, pretty substantially. I mean, we had an almost eight times amount of revenue over a nine month period. So, but along with that, growth costs a lot of money. And so the more growth that you have, the more inventory you have to build into it. And along with all the overheads and whatnot, it's just something that just became untenable over time, even though we were right there. And so that's why we started looking, all right, is there, are there other ways that we can build the business even outside of what we're doing from a brewing standpoint, because we're almost at break even from a brewing standpoint, is there something else that would be cool? And Brett was pushing me for I mean, probably six months or something like that to really understand what this seltzer thing was. But to the core of your question, why did we start off more on-premise heavy than off-premise heavy? I think that's where Brett went before I was there. That's what he knew how to do and he did it well. When I jumped on, we started to balance that ratio of business out a little bit more. You mentioned direct to consumer. The only place that we actually sold direct to the consumer was from the tap room. So there's a couple of just probably semantics when it comes into direct to consumer is when you're selling directly from a brewery to a consumer. Otherwise you're going through a wholesaler. They're the ones that are selling to, you know, the venues and the chains and whatnot. What about modeling? So whenever I've done anything in my life, every business that I've started is an amalgamation of the businesses that I like. And so when I see a hole in the market and I think if I combine these facets of these other businesses, that I'll be able to create something that's entirely unique, but speaks to the things that I know people already like. As you were crafting Elephant as a brand, who did you model after? What brands did you look to to emulate that inspired you? I think one of the biggest things, I know Brett's about to say this, he's going to say Spindrift, right? (laughs) So we were inspired by the lack of innovation in the seltzer market. So we went to the store and when he was really starting to push seltzer, and I literally didn't know anything about it, except for that, you know, I've seen the white clothes and the trulies out there. But when we started looking at it, everything was the exact same. So you go and you look at the shelf at a Albertsons or a Vons or even the 7-Eleven. At the time, this was at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, everything that was a hard seltzer was four and a half percent. It was 
all in skinny white cans, so 12-ounce sleeks as opposed to standards, which most of the time in the beer industry, we're used to the standards. They all had like this fruit on it, but at the same time, they were the exact same flavor profiles. I mean, they were like black cherry or lime. They were using natural flavoring. And to me, that's just the craziest phrase that is allowed to be used in beverage right now is because it's just not natural. It's not real. It's not coming directly from a real product. And so we decided let's do everything and flip it on its head. And let's do something that we really felt passionate about as opposed to just trying to grab shelf space. And that's where Elephant really started to thrive. And Brett, if you go to his house and you look at what he's feeding his kids, (laughs) it's like, what do you make for him in the morning, Brett, from like a shake standpoint? We make our popsicles from scratch. We coconut water and watermelon. We freeze them. Kids don't eat anything bad. And at that age, we want to make sure they're putting good stuff into their body. And I think even at an older age, you got to stop putting that fake stuff. And again, it sounds contradicting because it's alcohol, (laughs) but I don't think there's anything wrong with a nice glass of wine or a good seltzer daily. I mean, it's all in moderation, right? But if you're going to put in your body, let's not put the fake stuff, like Steve said, that's got all that. If you can't read it and you don't understand what it is, you shouldn't be putting it in your body. So if And be very intentional about the flavor profiles too. I mean, like instead of just putting something that's, let's say, a black cherry that tastes medicinal, we wanted to do something that had an elevated flavor. And coming from the craft beer world, we wanted something that you really want to drink. And I still think there's a big hole in the market for that right now is creating something that has a lot of great flavor, some boldness to it, that just doesn't fall flat when you put it in your mouth and you swish it around. It's something our flavors are exciting. They're the mixed berry uses blackberries, raspberries, and blueberries, but it also has ginger and lime. So it's these things that just kind of pop out at you and it's real color. It's like this red purple hue and it has a little bit of haziness because it's, again, it's real fruit. When you looked at your target audience, was it just everyone that drinks seltzer? Were you trying to bring new people into the seltzer market? When you talk about your customers, who are they specifically? Yeah, we have, this is kind of a challenging question because there's so many different ways you can go. Everyone is drinking seltzer now. If we were to specify exactly who we are targeting, 25 to 35-year-olds, probably 60% female to 40% male from a marketing standpoint, people that have a little bit more experience in life that also have probably some more room in their pocketbooks to really chase after something that is a little bit more expensive. You know, our seltzers are probably $3 more expensive on the shelf than a truly or a white claw 12 pack. But we feel like we're really giving that back to them and higher ABV and real fruit and better flavor profiles. So it's really those people that are expecting more out of their beverage, but it really comes down to those are the same type of people that are expecting more out of everything in life, out of not just their drinks, but they're probably living more active lifestyles. They're probably going out to restaurants and experimenting with different types of food and cooking that food at home. So there's a little bit of that foodie aspect to it. But of course, we're going to try and transition some of the people that have also been on the White Claw and the Truly Trends and that you know are drinking the Natter Days up. So we want to transition them up to a better product. And so it's kind of taking that craft approach and pulling the people in from the craft beer world, 
or people that just want more out of their beverage, but also elevating people that are drinking products that we think that we can do a little bit better with. What's a marketing strategy look like? Are you guys focused heavily on social? Is it about storytelling? Is it about customer journey and experience? What's the go-to-market look like? It's funny because it's always evolving, right? It's different than you and me back in the day, Josh, when we're talking for our nightclub, right? Like people had to show up, get a photo in a magazine. It printed a week later. Like it's moving fast. So one, our marketing strategy, I think, our brand itself, we want it to be fun. We want it to be cheeky. We want it to be playful. We want it to appeal to that crowd that Steve mentioned, or our audience. But we also have to get really creative. What's going to pop? There's TikToks, there's social, there's Instagram. I mean, it's more than just putting a picture on Instagram. It's getting that ROI and it's finding that needle in the haystack of a marketing plan. I mean, we've got a few ideas that we're about to roll out, especially since we just relaunched the brand about a couple months ago. And we've kind of changed the packaging and we've kind of really honed it in on what we want to do. So I think you're going to see some social, you're going to see some TikTok, you're going to see some influencer marketing, you're going to see some funny viral videos and commercials. So again, we hope we're going to have that one that everyone follows and laughs at and reshares and fingers crossed, but I believe we can do it with the team and the people we put together. Yeah, it's really a multi-pronged approach to what Brett is saying is you have to have a social presence now. Um, You have to be communicating and collecting feedback from your consumers. Another thing that we've seen work really well in beverage is also creating experiences. So it's not something where you can just pay some influencers to go out there and create a video about your brand that just doesn't come across very well. It's not authentic. I don't want to put it down. It just doesn't seem as authentic as when you're giving someone product and letting them try it and asking for their direct feedback. And everything that we've received when we've done that has been amazing. So we're essentially putting stuff out there for influencers to give us their feedback, to share with their audiences, to be able to see what's going on. But we also are going to be doing a ton of events. So we're doing all of the brouhaha type of events. We're at to the brouhaha this coming weekend. Then we've got the brouhaha. We've got Punk in the Park and a bunch of those things. We're doing total wine tastings. I think we've got 17 total wine tastings over the next three or four weeks. And then in addition to that, you also have to attack from a branding standpoint. You know, there's the brand and then there's the actual product. And so when you're in the store and trying to get people to pull your product versus someone else, you have to do a really great job of putting your product in front of them. So I don't know if you can see, but like this is a case stack back here. And so that's something from a grassroots standpoint, as opposed to just putting product on a shelf and expecting it to sell through, try and tell something about your brand to the consumer with whatever you can. And so this is a way to create presence as well as to tell a little bit more about the brand. There's other ways to do that. I could talk on and on. Again, there's so many different ways we're approaching it. But to Brett's point, I mean, it's just not something that is always set in stone. We have to adapt to what's going on these days. And it's definitely not the same type of market or marketing approach that you would take two years ago even. I want to look back before we look forward. So when you look back over the course of your careers, how has mentorship played a role? Yeah, I mean, I didn't go to college. I think neither of my parents did either, and I was never like pushed upon. It was kind of like, what do you want to do in life? And a man of many traits, a master of none, is kind of what I've kind of fallen into, I think, because I always do dip my fingers in a lot of stuff. And 
maybe that's a negative in a sense. Like I should maybe focus a little harder on a certain thing. And the older I get, the more I'm realizing that. But I think failure, you fail forward, right? And you keep learning from those experiences. I think everything, it's not a failure. It's an experience. If something doesn't go the way you want it, a good quote that I always love to say is experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. I don't know if I'll ever get what I want because <laughs> that's my mentality is I always love working. I'll never stop working. I think the people I've looked up to, and I love the Richard Bransons. I love the Steve Jobs. Right now, I love Elon Musk. They have kind of a balls out, just go for it mentality. Do I agree with all of their work ethics and things? Not necessarily, but I think the mentality of you have to be different, you have to think outside the box, and you have to try. Because if you don't try, well, then you're just going to be stuck working for somebody else the rest of your life and look back on your life and go, well, I could have done it that way. So there's no better time than to do it now, right? And that's kind of my motto is just do it now and see where it lands and hopefully it benefits you and the people around you. Yeah, I mean, I shoot. I think life is just, you know, to what Brett is kind of saying here is it's a bunch of experiences and there's so many different people that influence you over, you know, the breadth of that time. But I will say that, you know, I grew up in a family setting where my dad and his partner were talking about business at the dinner table and me just sitting there and listening to him. I was always fascinated by it. But as I started to kind of get into a little bit older life stages and was going to, I did go to school and went to a bunch of different community colleges up and down the state and was about to quit school when I was looking to get into, you know, a final four year school. And I finally got accepted to Cal State Fullerton as part of their entrepreneurship program. And that was just such an amazingly influential time of my life of where exactly what we're talking about here with mentors. Part of what they do is they have you kind of walk you through every different part of business, but they also have mentors for every different class that you're a part of, whether or not that's business administration or finance or leadership, et cetera. And you're always working on projects with real companies. And those mentors are helping you think through different ways that you might want to adapt to help those companies. So there's a number of them through that whole process. I've kept in touch with a number of the teachers and the mentors in there. But then outside of that, as you start to go through work, life experiences and the people that you get to interact with, whether it be my direct people that were you know above me, that were giving me feedback, or even a lot of the people I've worked with, I've learned so much from Brett. I've learned so much from friends and colleagues from Stone Brewing and Stone Distribution, Chad Heath, Sean Bocar, Trento, people that I've hired. I mean, literally, you can go up and down the whatever you want to call it, the ladder with it. And it just I've never had anyone that's like a direct mentor, but I've been mentored by so many. So hard to give you a specific answer on that. Well, I'm looking forward. Do you have a clarity as to what winning looks like? Have you guys clearly defined success for Elephant? And if so, what does it look like? And where do you hope to be in the next 12 months? Winning, winning, winning. <laughs> you know, personally, I'm having fun. Like, I wouldn't do this if I wasn't having fun. You know, there's the ups and downs and whatnot. But I think winning, for me, it's I'm not chasing the dollar. The, the, the winning part for me is to build a successful brand. And what is success? It's everyone else around you is winning, right? And what is winning for that person? Like me right now in my life, I'm 40 in a month. I'm winning. I got two beautiful sons, a beautiful partner. 
we're healthy. You know what I mean? And I'm able to like start this project with a team like Steve and the group we have so that actually everyone can fulfill that success of winning. If it's monetary, great. If it's to be a part of something that's changed the direction of a product like the seltzer to make it more real fruit and elevated that way, then so be it. But that's winning to me. And so in 12 months from now, shoot, I think to be on the shelves, there's nothing better than seeing your product on the shelves and people posting about it and telling you that it tastes delicious. And it's a proud thing. It's kind of a pride thing. It's like watching your kid walk for the first time. You're like, what's next then? What's next? You know, how can we make this get into everybody's hands and everyone gets to enjoy it? That's winning. That's what I see. Yeah, I think there's so many different ways to answer that. I told you I'm verbose. So the operator side of me can give you all the different things that we're going towards as milestones, getting 750 accounts within three months, hitting a run rate of a million dollars per year, eventually getting to a $5 million per year revenue. I mean, those are all things that we definitely need to do and we want to do as a business to make sure that it's viable and that we can really add value to our shareholders and people that are within our company and make sure that we're successful, right? Those are important things that we need to track. But what you always hear from entrepreneurs is we want this to be alive. We want to feel like we have ownership within a space. We want to feel like we're doing it the right way, that we've made an exceptional product that we're stoked to bring home to our families and have them say, wow, that's good. Because <laughs> that doesn't always happen, you know? And even with Elephant, I mean, some of the first iterations that we did, some of the looks I got back just tore into my soul of like, yeah, you need to work on this a little bit, which is great, right? That's the only way you move forward. But I think that we've already won to a certain extent. We've built a, a wonderful brand. We have a lot more to do from a marketing standpoint to get it out there, to get other people to experience what we've done. We've gotten great partners within the industry that we've partnered with. We're already getting into a number of just really wonderful accounts. I think that we're all just proud of what we're doing. And to Brett's point, like that also enables the other side of life, which is the family and friends aspects to really just run so much smoother. And when you're grinding as an entrepreneur, not getting paid for a year and a half, it's just, it's something that affects every part of your life. So to get to this point, it's already a success in my mind, but we still have just so many other things to do. We've really gotten to the stage where this is a self-sustained, it's never going to be self-sustained, but something that's a business that, that's really going to be able to live on its own. That's Brett Lawrence and Stephen Young. For more on Elephant Craft Seltzer, visit elephantcraftseltzer.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.